Hey, it's Melvin, one of your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. Whether it's your first time tuning in or you're a longtime listener, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Reviews are the lifeblood of the podcast world, so if you want to help us out, it'll take only a moment of your time. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to Cinematic Doctrine. I, you texted the group chat, the infamous group chat, and you're like, because you've been pestering me, pestering is the wrong word, you've been suggesting covering this movie in some form, slash the general works of Oz Perkins for a while, and I've heard a lot of good things about Blackheart's Daughter, a lot of the horror people that I listen to or follow on things like this movie, so it's always been on my to watch list, but you seem to really like it, so you finally watched it, and spoilers, I thought it was good. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say I wasn't like cheering and screaming the whole time. I wasn't like super like pumped about it. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. And then you texted the group chat and you're like, we're talking about one of my favorite movies tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I feel like my level of enthusiasm is nowhere going to be near yours. Because I also didn't come away with a lot of things that I felt like stayed with me to the point where I, there were things I wanted to talk about necessarily. But I'm sure based on the fact that right before we start recording, you talked about how you watched the movie again yesterday and you rewound and watched scenes a second time and you stayed up late talking about the movie with your wife so i'm sure you'll you'll have a lot more insights and things to uh, share with me but do you do you want to go over sort of a brief plot description or should i do that because there's currently people doing construction outside of your window i think you're effectively better at introducing movies anyway so yeah go ahead that's so nice of you to say (laughs) I just start rambling or I start getting off the rails or I start spoiling things like a little too early in terms of <laughs> in terms of the podcast flow uh, where uh. I, I can tell that you're actively like, well, let's go back. Wait a minute. Let's go back. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. <laughs> so absolutely. Go ahead. So The Black Coat's Daughter is a 2015 horror film written directed by Oz Perkins, who is the son of the guy from The Shining. Anthony uh, Perkins. Anthony Perkins. Who is also Dorky Dave and Legally Blonde, if you didn't know. <laughs> I, did not, I did not know that. <laughs> I haven't seen Legally Blonde since it played in the background of a soccer game pizza party. I was at when I was like eight years old. Was that but, your first time watching it? I don't know if we count that as a watch, but yes. <laughs> that is the only time I've watched it, actually. I'm looking at him. He's on the poster of, of Legally Blonde. He's in the background. It looks real funny. How quickly have already derailed my attempt to go and give me a plot <laughs> He's also in Quigley, which we both know is from a Best of the Worst episode of Red Letter Media. He chases around a dog version of Gary Busey. Sorry, are we talking about Oz Perkins or Anthony Perkins? Because that's Oz Perkins. That is Oz Perkins. We are talking okay. about Oz Perkins. I thought you said Anthony Perkins was on the cover of No, Legally Anthony Blonde, Perkins is his dad. Ve- I was very confused. No. <laughs> I understand the relationship. I did not understand the relative relationship to Legally Blonde. Anthony Perkins, who of course is from Psycho, in case people didn't realize who we were talking about. Who later directed subsequent Psycho sequels. I believe I know he directed Psycho Three. I don't know if he directed Psycho Two. We did That's have cute. a lot of a uh, Psycho Two is actually it's a very good movie. More people should see it. But yes, so this is a movie written and directed by Oz Perkins, who as we've just uh, established as the son of Anthony of Perkins. Dorky Dave or fame, Dorky Dave fame, the man, the myth, the legend. You want to see where a guy's career starts? That's where you go. This is where he ends up. Can I derail you a third time? Is it possible? Is it possible? I mean, it's very—it's an audio medium. All I have to do is make noise at the same time as me. So, 
but this, despite releasing widely releasing after his second film, I'm the Pretty Little Thing. Uh, this was the first film he wrote and directed, uh, though it saw wider distribution following his second film. The Black Coat's Daughter takes place at a prestigious girls' school that I believe is a Catholic school, and it takes place during a cold winter break. There are three girls. There is uh, particularly Rose and Cat who are staying at the school during a break. Uh, let's make sure I get the names correctly. Joan is the third. Uh, I know. Yeah, Joan is Emma Roberts. Kiernan Shipka is Cat, and Lucy Boynton is Rose. Cat uh, is a freshman who is very peculiar in her actions. She reacts to things very slowly. She has that uh, indie horror film vibe to her, where she's there's something just subtly off about her. And as the film goes on, you sort of learn more about why she is uh, acting so peculiarly. Rose is a senior at the school who believes that she is pregnant. And as a result, she does not want to go home and see her parents. But the headmaster sort of uh, entrusts her with looking after Cat. And from there, spooky, weird things sort of slowly and subtly happen because this is an A24 film. Uh, uh, concurrently to this, we are seeing the events of Joan, a girl who is uh, also acting peculiar for reasons that we will understand as the film goes on, who is hitchhiking and she gets picked up by two older people, one played by James Remar, and as they're also headed towards the same boarding school. And for there, the movie does interesting things with how it plays with the timelines, how it plays with what we see and do not see. There is a lot of great use of sound. There's great use of shot composition, as well as things just being kept in the darkness. Um, a lot of characters do peculiar and odd things, and we don't really understand why they're doing them for a period of time. If it feels like something is not quite adding up or you don't quite understand why people are doing things, that is by design, as the film slowly shows you what is actually taking place uh, in the goings-on. I thought it was a rather effective, atmospheric, slow-building horror film that actually builds to a pretty solid crescendo. Movies like this, uh, for me, my judgment of them like I love some slow moving atmosphere. That stuff's great with me. However, my actual enjoyment of the film, it, it really hinges on how much all that pays off. Yeah. I feel like my patience should be rewarded. And in this case, I felt it really was. This movie is, you know, it's good because if you look around tomatoes, uh, the critical consensus is rather high and then the audience consensus is not high. And that's how you know this is going to be a good horror movie. What's the disparity? It's like 70 something high 70s for critic and then lower 50s for audience which isn't the mm. worst like if you, i think mother or something is like way lower than that but i can see how some people who they want things to jump out at them they want shots of gratuitous gore or loud screaming sounds uh, this is not your movie this is not a blumhouse film it is an osperkins movie it's quite good i can see why you like it there's themes of religion of faith uh not to get too far into spoilers, but there is a sort of supernatural element throughout the movie, though it's very, very, very downplayed, which I always enjoy. Hey there, it's your friendly neighborhood call to action. Just checking in on you. Hope you're doing all right. I'm just stopping by to say, you know, if you enjoy the show, you can always subscribe and write a review for Cinematic Doctrine. There's iTunes, Podchaser, basically anywhere you listen. You can give us a shout out with a thumbs up, five stars, gripping positivity. Or if you hate the show, you can say that too. Wait, what? What are you saying? Why are you saying that? Well, I'm not going to tell them what to do, Ted. They're free to do what they want. Our analytics say we got a lot of listeners in the U.S. and you know they love their freedoms. 
And you're also free to check out our Twitter. Very active there. We host polls, memes. There's also the Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group called Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group. If you want to join, just answer the questions, read the rules, and tell them the podcast sent you. Also, you should check out our website. Some really cool stuff there. Editorials, written reviews for movies we haven't had time to cover. Always check out cinematicdoctrine.com when you get the chance. Oh, uh, Ted also told me I shouldn't forget to mention the Patreon. Something about you can support us or something? Wait, Ted, I thought this was like a hobby thing. You it's want me to... expand Cinematic Doctrine. You know right, this already. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, <laughs> I forgot. I'm the one who put all this together. Yeah, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can gain access to early uncut episodes of the podcast. Oh, and did I mention, you get to tell us what to do. That's right, each month you get to vote on a movie we discuss on the show. Anyways, I gotta run, so I'll see you guys later. But I quite enjoyed it. Anything more is spoiler because all details of this movie are obscured (laughs) until the end. So going any deeper would be a spoiler, but I enjoyed it. But this is one of your favorite films. So I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Yeah, I this is a weird movie where like I get a lot of a lot, a lot of strange feelings from it, which I guess is my thing right now um, in terms of people who probably the couple people who probably follow my letterbox, they'll be able to figure out what time we're recording based on this. But I just like, I watched Godfather. We just watched Batman. Well, I guess you could just know based on what I just said. Um, Batman didn't really get anything out of me, but then I watched stalker again, that got a lot out of me again. And now I'm watching this and this is just in that same, like I haven't made a list of this, but in the list of like movies that make me feel things. And this makes me feel a lot of things for some reason. It's really strange because I mean, you watch the movie, right? Like it doesn't have a lot that happens in the film, but I think that so much of what's taking place is how you're participating with the with the dialogue, with the visuals that are taking place. Because um, did you find that this movie, when you were watching it, you kind of were thinking alongside it, or like there's like a mystery, so you're trying to solve the mystery before it's solved, that kind of thing. So yes, I mean, there's a level of engagement that comes from. You're just going, what is happening? Why is this happening? And you want to know what is going on, why it's going on, and who's kind of the active force in the film. And yeah, there's that level or there's a part of me that was trying to figure it out. But I also felt like the movie wasn't giving me that many pieces to put together at the same time where everything was so obscured. I'm sure like if you're the type of person who when you're watching a mystery or you're watching like a murder, she wrote episode or something, you're actively trying to solve it before the characters do. If you're that type of person, I would not be surprised if you figured out what was going on before the movie revealed it. And at a certain point I thought it became relatively obvious. So I, I kind of figured out what was going on, but I'm not someone who's trying to get ahead of the movie. I like, I right. like to let a movie. You're not competing yeah. with the film. Like, ah, I got you. That means it's bad, which is not, a really good way to yeah watch I'm, I'm forgiving i'm the type of person who's like, yeah just just let, just unveil yourself to me and i will go along for the ride that's the type of viewer i am which i know for some people they enjoy the element of trying to like trancy thing get ahead of the movie um but i'm just not one of those people okay yeah i mean yeah so this sort of movie as it's developing just sort of it, it engages the audience if they like it uh, to think alongside it, to figure things out, but I think also to understand the characters of which there's not very much depth to these characters. There's not a whole lot of 
drama, but I think in terms of tone or theme, that's where the characters start to breathe and move around. Pretty much every single figure has something to do with, I, I would almost say repulsion, like removing yourself from something else. Every single character has some different experience or form in which they're they're undergoing that motive, if that makes any sense. Um, Kat is left at the school while her while you're questioning where are her parents picking her up for this um, vacation that the whole school's on. Uh, Rose is choosing not to go home, but is also questioning whether or not she wants to have this child and also wondering if she's pregnant or not either. And of course, Joan is sort of floating around, but it's clear that she's isolated and alone during the entire time. There's something strangely cathartic to me about watching a film that not just in its characters and its um, story is about repulsion and I guess you could say like self-selecting care because you're choosing where to invest your care and where not to, except doing that with human beings, which I think is... I'm shaking my head. Um, it's it's it feels dirty to think about, and I think something about that adds a level of nastiness to the film. Although I don't think this movie is nasty at all I, in terms of meanness. I don't think it's a mean movie. Uh, but having experienced stuff like that in my own life, where people are selective about how they care for you, and uh, specifically in the the sense that the film is also set at like a church school um and my entire life being experienced through church school or like church in general and having to work with people that you are expected to be cared for by these people but they choose not to and maybe they're not ballsy enough to just tell you outright that they don't want to take care of you and you're having to navigate that uh this movie dredges up a lot of that experience and feeling for me and not in a traumatic way that makes me feel uncomfortable but more in a cathartic way that makes me go i'm not alone in this experience and i find the the slasher-esque nature of the film to be a cathartic release for a lot of those angst the angst and feelings that i get from that kind of life if that makes any sense um and so i find myself even though there are things in this movie that quite don't work so not in times of quite don't work but like there's a scene where a character vomits but the way that it's edited makes it almost like a punchline do you know the scene i'm talking about the um the meal scene yes okay yeah yeah something about it looks funny but it's obviously not this whole film has an atmosphere of isolation and loneliness to the point where it almost feels like the only characters in the movie are the only characters that exist on the planet Earth in this film. And even then, it's like nothing else exists on Earth except for Bramford School, which is the school they're at, and like the traffic stop and the restaurant they go to, and I guess the hotel, which has a very dreamlike quality, which I think this film also captures. I think there's a lot of scenes in this film that feel like nightmares, um, specifically into the second and third act as you're starting to see things unveiled, the way that the scenes are shot and handled has a very, you get enough, but not everything kind of atmosphere, even though we're we're now revealing things to you, you're getting them in a way that's very different, um, including the most, the the scene at the very end, right before, well, right before the climax, really, where the voices are modulated, even though it almost seems like they shouldn't be at all. All of that's really interesting to me in terms of capturing emotion and feeling, which I think is the biggest strong pursuit of this film. It almost goes, we don't have the budget to create complicated sets or have complicated scenes 
or extras or whatever, but we do have the ability and capacity to manipulate feelings as all art does. So let's do that primarily. And I think that's where you get a lot of the strong suit in terms of how the film engages the mind, how I'm participating in the mystery, which again helps draw me in, paired alongside the tone and theme of isolation and loneliness. Um, and then lastly, like even the the thing that I find fascinating to, to observe is that like the the things that are happening and the the one thing that doesn't leave people alone, um, well, actually, I guess I guess that would be going into spoilers, so we'll get into that later. But the there's an interesting non-resolution to the loneliness in the film that arguably is the antagonist of the film uh, that I also find fascinating in terms of what it's trying to, to talk about and discuss, and also equally is relatable. I just like this movie a lot. I think also um, Osgood Perkins does well to draw things out of his performers. I think Kiernan Shipka has some of the most frightening faces I've seen in a movie. Um, there are times when she's doing things that it almost feels like she, she isn't being filmed. Like that's how she captures certain things that are taking place. Um, most notably after a particular, uh, well, man, it's, it is hard to talk about without spoiling. I mean, even just things, but um, I think in terms of both how the lighting is handled for her as a performer and then the faces that she's able to handle and, and the um, the physical performance she has makes her a nightmarish thing to to behold. And then Lucy Boynton in, Boynton in particular basically plays a normal person in a way that's so natural. That's a great contrast to a borderline cartoonish story where every character feels like well, every character is just a character in a story, except for Boynton, who is this character that feels like an actual person moving in this world. Uh, and then, of course, Emma Roberts is great, as typical. So, yeah, I I think there's a lot of stuff to love, even if um even if the the freshman issues occasionally arise. In particular, one scene where a character is shoveling outside, and the whole film feels isolated and lonely, as I mentioned before. And yet you can see the reflection of like four cars drive by the house, which immediately helps populate the world and not feel as lonely and cold, which this movie feels cold to watch. Um, I don't know if you got a bit of that, but you can just feel how just disgustingly cold it is in this world. So yeah, I, I love it. And of course we can draw more of that as we discuss further. Yeah, I love this movie. It's good. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Tell your friends about this show it really helps yeah I, there's definitely that feeling of isolation and i don't know if you ever share this experience of being at a college campus uh, after everyone goes home for break has, has that ever happened to you i did like two or three semesters at a community college but i dropped out twice okay i just wasn't into it at the time so uh that is my experience yes college ain't for everybody I stayed on campus at my undergrad Bible college several times, both as an employee and also take summer classes. And there's a couple parts of the movie that really do capture like that weird liminal spaciness of staying at a school when there's no other students that I really appreciated. Um, I wish there's more of that stuff in the movie because that's not the focus of the movie. But there are a couple of scenes where you see them just walking around the hallway also the weird feeling of like you just eat with the people that are left over because no one else at the school is oddly captured with the two 
Um, I don't know what they were. Were they? I was a nurse. I don't know if the other person was a cook or something. But there were two school employees, these older women, yeah. who yeah. were staying there as well. That they eat meals with, and that's just this weird, uh, uncomfortable thing that not everyone gets to experience. But it does feel off. Like you're walking on the campus, you're used to it being a populated area full of life and vibrancy, which you see a little bit early in the movie, where like everyone gathers to watch a performance from Kieran Shipka. Um, and that sort of thing, and all the DC students running around, and that's only for the first like 15, 20 minutes of the movie. The rest of the movie, it's just them on this like cold. It's like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. It's just like they're just uh, there's this isolated snow filled area, but they capture that feeling really well, and that's a perfect setting for a scary story where one of the students is really weird. And <laughs> obviously, we both recommend the movie because it's a this is a special episode. We're specifically picking to highlight it, so. I think I'm comfortable enough getting into spoilers now. But so the big mystery around the episode, and this will not come as a shock to you if you're a fan of Kieran and Shipka, because for some reason she loves projects where she gets involved with or possessed by demons or devils. Some of you may now know her as Sabrina the Teenage Witch from the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Netflix show. They, what if they only know her from Fangirl? <laughs> or her voice work in, I think, um, one of the Studio Ghibli films or, or something. Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore. That's yeah. the only, that's it. Oh, and I guess she's the young girl in Carriers. Who knows? It's never established to be specifically the devil, to be fair. But uh, so the implication as to why the girl is acting so odd is that she's likely been possessed by some sort of paranormal spectery entity some sort of demonic force and there's references to satanism because everyone thinks that catholics just walk around thinking about the devil all the time apparently that's what if your understanding of religion is only through horror movies you think that every catholic is just waiting for satan to jump out and possess them or something my understanding of catholicism is exclusively related to matt murdoch (laughs) okay that's it so where the devil is inside all of us um (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're one for context for for Catholicism is not about demon possession. It's about a guy dressing up like the devil, calling himself <laughs> the devil and beating people up. But that's not what Catholics are like, to be fair. But anyway, <laughs> either one, they're not. They're neither vigilantes beating up Wilson Fisk, nor are they chasing the devil around. But uh, but of course, because it's a horror film, the headmaster is <laughs> capable of exorcisms. The other people working there are familiar with the devil. And so it is implied that this girl might be possessed by the devil or a demon of some kind. The other element going on is that the older couple that we see picking up Emma Roberts are referencing losing their daughter. And so they talk about things and in detail start to add up and you're wondering if things maybe aren't lining up timeline wise. And as things goes on, you realize that you're seeing things semi out of sequence and so it's a mystery of like, is one of them dead? Is one of them actually a spirit being possessed? And so the, all these possibilities start adding up very subtly. Like at no point do they hit you over the head with what's going on. They don't soup. They don't like jump to a shot of somebody who's actually decomposing body standing there or a gravestone with the character's name on it or something. <laughs> People just say things. And from there, you can kind of infer what is going on as you realize that everyone involved isn't exactly as you assume they were at the beginning, which is some great tension. And, Part of what makes to me the horror element of this movie work so well is it's never over the top. It's very restrained. Thing they they really hold back their reveals, and as things goes on, go on, you just sort of vibe with the general uncomfortableness. Because then, not Kieran and Shipka, the other girl, uh, sees 
Kieran Shipka's character prostrating herself before a boiler in the basement. And she says bizarre things like saying like my parents are dead or something. And as things go on, granted she begins to look more like a movie possessed person where like her skin becomes pallid and she starts looking more haggard. And there's a scene where she starts to contort uncomfortably on her bed when no one's looking and that sort of thing. All of this leading to the uh, big reveals at the end where we're brought to sort of a third timeline where we see things from the perspective of Kieran Shipka's character. And this is, I guess, where you get more into the the themes you're talking about, because Oz Perkins, uh, I did a little brief wiki reading, and he stated this is a movie, I think, about loneliness, but he felt that he couldn't make a horror film unless he threw in these supernatural elements, but he considered removing them entirely because that's not what he thinks the movie is about, which is interesting. And it's not, it really isn't, uh, which we can get into uh, after you continue. But like, yeah, it's, it's not really about the paranormal stuff. In fact, this is the first watch where I was like least engaged in the paranormal stuff. If that makes any sense. Like I was less convinced of it. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Because yeah, the root, horror is both the isolation the characters are feeling but also like the isolation of being with people that you don't necessarily are comfortable with like that was kind of my impression because the stuff with emma roberts and the parents it's so uncomfortable it is (laughs) the the lengths that the the husband goes to being nice to emma roberts is very uncomfortable very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, you understand more about why he's doing what he's doing um, by the end because it's like, oh, you remind me of my daughter who died kind of stuff. And it seems like this is kind of his coping mechanism versus his wife who just doesn't like this girl. And has one of the most nasty lines in the movie when she's talking in the car. And well, she's, you look nothing like her. Like, not just like, that you don't look anything like her. And she's like, it's strange. I can't see you at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rough. Yeah, it's not a nice thing to say to someone you just met. But yeah, there's that where it's like the vibe between Emma Roberts and the father is off. The vibe between uh, the two girls at school is off. The vibe between the disconnect between the people working at the school and the students is they like all these things are disconnected from each other. And there's all these clearly weird things going on, but they don't have anyone to turn to or talk to. Like the kids can't talk to their parents. They can't talk to the school. They're just kind of alone with each other as things begin to. And even the conversation of connection, the only one that really could be there is between Rose and her boyfriend or maybe not even boyfriend, just a one one night stand thing. Which gets into, like, as we see from, I should learn these character names. As we get into with a cat, as we see these from Cat's perspective, we realize that, yes, there is a supernatural element going on. She is seeing some sort of horned beast, but she seeks out the horned beast. Like, she wants that connection with the creature, like, or a demon or whatever. And so, like, the reason she does the things that she does is to be connected with the demon and the big thematic reveal is that Emma Roberts's character is Kieran and Chipka's character from we're seeing things. The, the Emma Roberts timeline is taking place years in the future where she, she was the, the headmaster performed exorcism on her, got the demon out of her as the demon's leaving. She's, she begs the demon to stay with her, which is interesting. And then she gets sent to a mental asylum. And this is the only thing in the movie that kind of annoyed me, which is like, 
I know Oz Perkins likes old movies from the 50s and 60s, probably because his dad was in them. But like, this is not how psychiatric units look or act or whatever. <laughs> like, but anyway, um, so she's hitchhiking to go back to the school because she wants to go back to the boiler room because she wants to see if she can reconnect with the demonic being once again. And then she can't. And so the movie ends with Kat, now played by Emma Roberts, crying because she's alone. And so, like, it's an interesting way to kind of get some sort of sympathy out of what is ostensibly the villain of the movie, I suppose, because that she's the one murdering people or whatever. But uh, oh, and, and I probably should mention this, but she killed, uh, she kills Rose by the end of the movie, and that's the daughter that the parents are saying died. So she ends up killing Rose's parents as well on her way to the school, perhaps as an attempt to rekindle the relationship with a demonic figure. Uh, there are some hints that this is the case before it happens, of course. The big one being that she laughs uncomfortably, kind of like Kieran and Shipka does when she's a younger kid. And so you feel bad for this person who has killed an entire bloodline, but at the same time, uh, you also don't because they're a horrible murderer. But the reason the 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 running motivation of her is that she wants to feel this connection with the devil. Uh, but that's the only person that she has. Her parents die in a car accident right at the beginning of the film. We get, she has a, I guess you call it premonition of that. And so who else does she have? She just has the devil. And so in her attempts to connect with something, she chooses evil and that causes her to do very evil things, which is a very horrific idea, which is what makes this an effective horror film, I, I think. But I know it jumped around a bit, but like the timeline itself jumps around a bit. So, so I guess we're in theme. Focusing on any one thread <laughs> causes you to kind of ignore some other things along the way. But to to just go over the actual bare bones uh, events, the movie hits a uh, gets a climax where Kiernan Shipka's character murders the two ladies and Rose cuts off their heads and puts them before the boiler room. Uh, the boiler in the boiler room. She yells, hail Satan, as a cop comes in and shoots her. And initially, you're sort of led to believe this is what causes her death. But we also see that Emma Roberts' character has a scar from getting shot. And um, as a hint that Emma Roberts is, in fact, Kieran and Shipka in the future. And so upon learning that they're going back to the school, she then murders them. And so we have a body count of about five people. And is this movie PG-13? I think it's rated R because they use the C word. Yes, rated R. Because when there is violence, it is rather violent, but... Hey there, listener. Want to influence the podcast? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine and support the show for $3 a month. In doing so, you'll be able to vote on a movie poll that picks a film we discuss each month. So jump on over there and have your voice heard. Yeah, it's pretty visceral. Um, Oz Perkins sort of just lingers on what's taking place. Like when he's killing the old, when she's killing the older women, I remember finding that very disturbing the first time watching and the second time. And then the third time I was like, yes, good stabbing. I love a good stabbing in a movie. That's probably why I like scream a lot. Uh, so, but yeah, it's, it's a surprisingly nightmarish movie. Um, especially as it's starting to finally show Kat's perspective of the events of the film, including a little before, and you're seeing how her coexistence with this demonic entity is developing. Uh, they, he, he cleverly does a couple film tricks to draw on what makes it sort of frightening. And I think a lot of that uh, adds to what makes it scary. Kind of like how I've 
talked with you how I'm like Insidious surprised me that it's PG-13 because it's so overwhelmingly scary until the end. Um, but then this one, of course, since I think I think if they didn't use the C word, <laughs> it would be uh, PG-13. Although maybe in Australia it's PG-13, um, but here, of course, it couldn't be. Yeah, what do you what do you think about now that all the all the reveals are out? Now that we're talking spoilers, how do you feel about the film in a, in a more specific, nuanced sense? Um, I quite, I still, yeah, I quite enjoy um, a good culty demonic kind of movie as long as for me like the the dividing line is is in the portrayal of the demonic forces at play like i think in this movie they do a good job of presenting them as uh, both something that's oppressive and evil and to be feared but also uh something that the character is calling there i know it's kind of probably like a, a not a uh fully accurate parallel to draw but comparing to something like the witch which has a similar kind of characters driven to demonic powers due to isolation and having no other options uh, where it feels bad when the innocent small child uh, turns to the dark side because they have no other options it's seen as a sort of tragic while the character feels triumphant as a viewer you feel tragedy in their decision and i think black host daughter does that really well in this case, both because you see sort of the fallout from that, where you don't always get to see the long-term effects of the events of a horror movie event. Like, you see the effect that Rose's murder has on her parents, where they're doing this bizarre yearly pilgrimage <laughs> to go to her where her grave is to lay flowers. And it seems like the husband finds it helpful, yeah. among other things. <laughs> like, imprint, not imprinting, but like, essentially... Uh, seeing uh, younger girls and going, uh, you're like my daughter. I will now be nice to you. And then the mom is like, this is the worst thing in the world. I never want to go back. <laughs> Please don't yes. do this. And he views it as a God acting in his life. Like he has his short little thing about God doing things in our lives and hope and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So he views this as a, as God setting up almost like a divine appointment in his life where God's put this girl in my life where unbeknownst to him, he's he's about <laughs> yeah. to get horrifically stabbed to death. But yeah, so I with with I I do like when supernatural elements are kind of downplayed, where the human drama and element is put more at the forefront, while there is something supernatural kind of going on in the background. That stuff always really works well for me. So Blackout's daughter has that in spades, and I think it's one of those also one of those movies where once all the reveals are are laid out, it doesn't feel cheap where I, I feel like on rewatches, I'm actually like the movie more because I'll see how everything is so put together so well. Cause that's something I've seen from the brief looking at other people's thoughts in the movie. Yeah. Is they comment on how well, and based on the fact that you've seen this several times, I'm assuming and really like it. I assume that's the case where it's richer on rewatches because yeah. you see everything kind of coming together. The first time I watched it, I think I gave it like a seven out of 10. Then I watched it again and I gave it an eight and now I have it at nine. And I might just pop it to 10, which 10 out of 10s for people is like, oh, it's a perfect movie. No movie's perfect. <laughs> I obviously see faults in this film. I just talked about like two of them earlier where like a scene that's supposed to be horrific at borderlines as a punchline. And uh, yeah, and some tone is lost in a particular shot. But that's filmmaking. You look at it in the editing, editing room and you're like, well, this is what I have. This is what I got to work with. 
But yeah, the, I, I said to Kat, like this time watching, like, it's funny, I'll forget things about this movie. So like, when Emma Roberts empties out the, her purse in a hotel room, I was like, oh, man, I bet she killed someone to get that. And then later they reveal it. And I'm like, man, I forgot that. <laughs> so like, it's, I think something clever about the editing and the dreamlike nature of the film lends itself to how I just forget dreams in general, how we people, human, you know, we human beings uh, forget uh, dreams. Um, so that makes it enjoyable to rewatch. Uh, additionally, I find myself understanding less about the movie because I see different ways that the film is displaying information. So in particular, the first time this dark entity reveals itself to Kat when we see her flashback is when she's taking a bath. Uh, you just see her little toesies. Uh, and then the camera pans away to show this shadowy figure in the reflection of some tiles, which is just such a clever way to display your shadowy figure. Um, but it's in a bathroom at like a girl's school where there's this, like, there's not very many men, but all of the men are very domineering that they display in the film. Um, and Oz Perkins, all three of his movies are pretty women centric. Uh, as my wife would say, he gets it uh, in terms of displaying women experiences. And so I was wondering this time around in terms of uh, removing the paranormal aspect of the film, is it not just abandonment, but abuse as well, um, which I found interesting to think about. Because even in the beginning, the opening scene of the film, which will either kill people's experience right away or get people interested, uh, we see a artistic display of her parents, her learning that her parents are dead. Or maybe just her mom is dead because she says dad or father, but also she may be speaking specifically to the priest because in Catholic circles, you would say father. So it's very fascinating to me. Like the more I think about it, the less I know, but that lends itself to being more interpretive. And I really enjoy that as a film choice too. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, the rewatching experience. I just draw on more or I understand less. It's just, but the film, like I said, is more of a feelings film, a participatory experience in feeling and thinking. And I think that uh, this movie just expertly does it, which is impressive for us, a freshman film, at least to me, that's how I feel. So hopefully on a rewatch, if you ever do, I don't know if you're, do you ever really rewatch movies except for like The Room and Dead Alive? Uh, and obligatory rewatches of comic book movies now because you have to do homework to <laughs> understand yeah, the movie. Yeah, so out. much homework. I I do rewatch movies. I'd like to rewatch movies more spaced out. Yeah, like give I think time to breathe because there's tons of movies you watch when you're in high school that are like this is the best movie I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, and you rewatch Boondock Saints as like an adult. And you're like this movie's kind of dumb, <laughs> but uh, you know. But I also think like there's some movies that I find that are like oh these this this age as well like. Like just as an example, like Pulp Fiction, for example, like, yeah, when you're in high school, Pulp Fiction is the greatest movie ever made. But as an adult, you're like, you know what? There's a reason this movie was extremely successful and nominated for some rewards. This movie is very good, you know, but also like the things I enjoy about it and the experience I have watching it changes and shifts as you get older. Yeah. Like just as a, this is a, not the most nuanced example, but like as a kid watching movies, there's movies you just enjoy because people are saying bad words and there's gratuitous violence. But as you get older, you're like, oh, there's characters, there's themes, there's whatever. And then I find, too, that like uh, my father has a strong affinity, for example, for movies that deal with themes of like fatherhood and children and that sort of thing. And so like as a kid and younger, you like stories like Winnie the Pooh because they're fun, whimsical stories. 
But as an adult watching a movie about Christopher Robin growing up and leaving the Hundred Acre Wood behind, you realize that's a movie about like growing up and you leave the things that you, and it's a childhood innocence you leave behind. And there's something nice about that. Like Christopher Robin with Ewan McGregor presents Hundred Acre Wood as a place you can go back, but via having your own children or as he has his own daughter, the Winnie the Pooh and this character can still stick around. And that's a theme that's going to hit you as an adult or a parent more than like just as a kid enjoying a movie with animated characters that people are, are having goofy voices for. So I like rewatching movies in that way where I wait for different periods of my life to go back and revisit something. I mean, as someone who does like a movie podcast, there's just not enough hours in the day to go back and just rewatch. Yeah. Rewatch a movie because I thought it was cool. I haven't rewatched Inception anytime recently, you know, you didn't go see it in 2020 when it was the first movie to open up in theaters before Tenet. <laughs> no. Wow. I did not. What kind of movie kind of fan neat, are you? But like, you're talking about like, Oh, I saw, um, you went and saw the Godfather in theaters, which sounds neat, but like, I had to like cancel two appointments just to watch this movie for this episode. <laughs> so, you know, rewatching things. The only time I rewatch something is if you put something on while my wife and I are eating dinner. And even then it's like we're putting on cartoons or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honey, I want to rewatch Black Coat's Daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I know you specifically hate things with demonic imagery themes because your time in the mission field. But this one's pretty minimalistic. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> until it basically turns it up. I would say 211 until, in comparison until to Until a film. character cuts people's heads off and yells, Hail Satan. <laughs> then yeah. it starts being like uh, like a subtext and just becomes the text. Then I cross mm-hmm. the line. That's when, I, that's when I draw the line. I'm okay with the devil being present. I draw a line at murder, says <laughs> Melvin. Enjoying this episode? Grab that share link and tell your friends. Word of mouth is the most effective way for a podcast to reach new listeners, so don't be shy. Share the episode wherever you can. I think I've uh, I found this movie kind of interesting to talk about on this podcast in particular, too. Uh, because Difficult, in a sense, because I feel like a lot of what I feel, too, is considered like what would not like get me canceled, but like... <laughs> In terms Where of, is this going, Melvin? <laughs> but it makes me want to say bad words, you know? Uh, it makes me want to say words that uh, people only say if they play video games and are near bridges. Um, <laughs> I uh, No, I more in the sense that, like, I, I think if you have a good understanding of sin and a good understanding of the age we live in, and we can't ignore the fact that the film is set at least in some sort of religious system. Um, therefore this concept of the body of Christ. So the idea of self supporting how individuals self support each other through a culture and a, and a community. And yet nobody's doing that in this entire film. I think it's easy to see the parallel of how the walk that we have when we start to feel isolated and alone, draws us to things that will fill that void. And so I greatly sympathize with Kat's character. I don't agree with the decisions. I'm not about to say, yeah, cut that head off, slay queen. Um, although as an audience member, I say that because it's because I like horror movies. That's fun. Um, but it's easy to sympathize with the idea that like, yeah, you said it's interesting that as the demon's being exercised, she's begging for it to stay. Like, please don't go. Uh, to the point that it's like sad that it goes. Um, and it's the only thing that at least for this character brought some semblance of belonging and, uh, security, which is the great 
lie that Satan will give you with every single sin is that this is security, that this is what's safe. In reality, it's destroying you and and actually quite literally removing other people from your life. And in this film, it's displayed by the fact that she's killing people. Um, but sin acts in the exact same way in that the more it's committed, the more isolated you become and you essentially kill people from your in in your relationships uh, by denying companionship, by denying grace, by denying hope or or some semblance of companionship. So I just find this film is easily relatable and cathartic in that display of 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 that struggle. Also, I like a good, I guess you could say like modern slasher because the film feels like a slasher, um, but just like an elevated horror style slasher. I really hate that term, but it's the closest I think I can get to describing the fact that it's both slasher stabby kind of movie as well as big headed. We have little setting, little sets, yet we're using that to our advantage to display a bigger theme or tone. So yeah, I I find that all interesting. The reason, of course, I started by saying this could get me canceled as a Christian is because I think I think it's easy in Christian circles uh, culturally to deny the reality and temptation and attraction of sin. We'll talk about it in a way that says like these things are easy to fall into. Now stay safe, put up some blinders, and have some stop signs or whatever. But we don't talk about it in a way that it's like, but what is it? Why why is it so convincing? And why is it so attractive? And I think um, this film, in terms of its artistic dis- dis- uh, display, is like, well, it's attractive because it's the only thing in this character's life that seems to be moving close to her and staying with her uh, and being around. And I think in a in a heady, meditative way, that's easy to understand and asserts why it can be so sad. Because... I don't know. I've I've experienced and listened to people who've talked in a very shaming manner of like how can people give in to such things so easily, especially when talking about like I'll just pick up some big things um right now, but like when talking about things like abortion or um gender issues and stuff like that. Uh I've I've heard Christians that I've I still love. It doesn't change when they say things like this, but uh when they've said Things like, how can anyone be so naive or stupid, I've heard, or idiotic when doing these things? And it's like, well, because everyone is pining to be loved and cared for uh, because Satan says God doesn't love and care for you, uh, that he's withholding from you. And unfortunately, it's really sad when people give in to those things. And so I find myself compassionate to Kat's character insofar as I'm also like, you're bad because <laughs> you're killing people. Uh, but then also I'm conflicted because I like a good stabbing and a good movie with stabbing in it. So yeah. What, what do you think about that? Like this idea of sympathizing with a character that's essential, that's basically bona fide evil. Doesn't get much more evil than <laughs> to camp with the devil. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, it's never named that it's the devil. They say hell Satan, but who knows? Well, you know, in the exorcist movies, it apparently wasn't, the devil is Pazuzu the whole time. Which but she just raised her hands. Hail Bagul. Yeah. <laughs> the best one. That's my favorite name. If you want to learn a lot of de- demon names, like actual, like, de- well, actual demon names, in the sense that these are demons from like real reality, Catholic tradition <laughs> stuff, they named them all in Sabrina. They're telling you much of Sabrina. It's a very weird show. Hey, hey, hey. We have some Patreon goals we're trying to reach. 
If we get enough support, we'll review each God's Not Dead movie, as well as The Inhumans, that really bad Marvel show from a couple years ago. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine and share your support. No, but like we as human beings are inclined to worship something. That is how we are built. That is why we all are seeking for some sort of meaning or something in our lives. And so uh, I think it's easy to focus in on that in the context of sin. Like we look at people who fall into sins, they fall into addictions or gluttony, or they fall into some sort of belief system of some kind. You know, they may be, maybe they're not people who are going out and doing drugs or something, but they're going to fill their life with something. Cause you don't just sit in a room in a chair for 24 hours a day. You have to do something. So, some people fill that void in their life with hobbies or they become obsessed with some sort of celebrity or something. Um, but every day, every moment of every day, our minds turn to something. We fantasize about things. We dream about things. When we're bored, we start daydreaming about something. And doing that, you'll find where your heart is oriented. Where do your passions lie? What is the thing that uh, you know dominates your thoughts when you are not actively doing something else? And I think that's where you learn where what your inner heart's desires uh, truly are. I think it was Martin Luther who said our hearts are idol-making factories. Piggybacking off that, Tim Keller is quoted as saying that an idol is anything you turn to and say, save me. And so for Kat, in this case, she turned to the most horrible idol you could possibly have, which is literal demon worship. But we are all prone to doing that same thing. When we turn to something other than God... Uh, for hope, for salvation, for companionship, for whatever, we have committed a form of idol worship. And that's not saying that like it's idol worship to love your spouse. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying with the thing that you're expecting to save you is an idol. And so that can be almost anything. I think I think that's kind of that. that, that I, what's interesting about horror movies, and this is one of the things I love about them, is they they take the most um, abstract things that you can metaphorically symbolize in something else and just make them as literal as humanly possible. Right. And absolutely. so you have, you have a movie where a character turns to the devil out of loneliness and a lack of hope. Uh, that's as blunt as you can possibly get, <laughs> but yeah, it's not that far removed from the movie where the, the bad dad, soccer dad, where the dad's too busy with his, with his job to hang out with his kids and play football. But he's you know? also trying to live, relive his dream through his son by forcing them to play football that kind of thing yeah or even not even it's, that just yeah. like the movie where the dad has a briefcase job <laughs> where he just is always getting in the car and driving somewhere else and he doesn't know mm-hmm. that his kid likes robots or whatever sure. uh, or likes fantasy it's the it's the same sliding spectrum just not as uh not as pronounced obviously but like we all have things that seek to dominate the parts of our lives that should be filled with God or the things God has put us in stewardship over or what have you. And so in uh, Kiernan Shipka's case, she just keeps picking projects where it's literally the devil. So I don't know. I I can't get over that, that it's, it was another thing I watched where the same actor gets possessed by the demon again. Does she perform similarly or is this very different? This is very different. She's extremely charming in Sabrina. The Chilling Adventures is Sabrina. Uh, she's perfect in that show. But so, yeah, I liked the I liked the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. I'm so happy. It's at least a <laughs> six out of ten. I'm feeling maybe a seven out of ten. It it's good. I um, it didn't 
connect with me clearly as much as it connected with you in terms of like um, themes, but I think it's a really effective version of this type of horror movie. Again, if you're expecting wall to wall spooks and gore and scares and whatever, like it's not going to happen. There isn't a scene where somebody's in a room and someone slams the rule out and goes, Oh, geez. And the person's like, Oh, sorry. Like that doesn't happen. <laughs> a bird doesn't crash against a window and, the a bird doesn't linger. fly around and explode like in, like in Nightmare 2. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Dang. Um, yeah, but there's a scene where like a person hits a deer or, or an animal and then it focuses on the animal carcass a bit because no one can logically die at that point in the movie, but they need to say something to keep the audience awake or whatever. But it's it's good. Like, and I appreciate that commitment to the execution of Perkins's vision. Like, I appreciate that as well. Because apparently it took him a while to get funding for the movie because it's such a... Uh, unique project that doesn't have a hook necessarily like i did not watch the trailer for this movie but i'd be very curious as to what a trailer for this would even look like because anything even remotely resembling like a mainstream horror film is all spoilers like did you see a trailer for this i i haven't but i bet it opens with something like they're talking and then she's like you smell nice and then it like shows lucy boynton panicking and it goes Gun, 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 gun. and then it's like stabbings and and it, like, yeah it cuts to the only like scenes of violence in the movie the most horrifying movie <laughs> of 2015 <laughs> uh be and it throws up all those critical reviews that are like terrifying what they mean is it's like mentally terrifying like it's like thematically troubling yeah but out of context it's like oh this movie's probably gonna feature a guy with a chainsaw cutting someone in half like no that's that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> uh, the the movie was originally called February too, which I th- also really really like that title. I wish it stuck around. Man, that'd be a nightmare to to <laughs> to, to, to try and like market. market. Yeah, I think that's exactly why they changed the title. But they're like, is this so like a does. Valentine's Day movie? And just, <laughs> it's like, no, Grandma. Anyways, Black Coat's Daughter, I love it. Check it out. Um, don't expect this movie to be... This is this is what people actually mean when they say slow burn horror movie, I think, um, because yeah, it is very it slow paced. burns into something. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, it actually... It, um, yeah, it, it becomes... A, it's a good climax. I think if you're looking for creativity, um, this is a movie that'll satisfy that crave too. I think Perkins does a lot with what he has. I think it has a good dream... I've said it a lot, a dreamscape kind of aesthetic. One scene in particular where the camera is very close to Kieran and Shipka on the phone and it's she's clearly lit up, but after she gets new information, it's a wide shot and she's just a silhouette, which you know logically doesn't make sense because she was just lit up in the same scene. But in terms of dream logic and film logic and tone setting, uh, it's all it's all there. And the movie looks visually great, too. It has a nice yeah. gloss sheen to it. It looks really nice. There's lots of great individual shots and moments. Like, as a pretentious person that talks about <laughs> movies, like, I like any movie <laughs> where there's just a scene of somebody kind of, like, kind of off-center, but you can hear them whisper talking. Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is cinema, baby. <laughs> like, that always works for me. But, you know who does that? Tom Hooper. Do you love Tom Hooper as a director? No. <laughs> Cats, the Danish girl. I mean, he does uh, great, I'm familiar he? with, <laughs> with Mr. With Hooper's works. <laughs> he also did King's Speech, which I know people make fun of that movie because it's a movie that won the Oscar post, you know, 1997 or whatever. People stop caring about the Oscars. <laughs> but that's like not a bad movie or anything. He just has a very limited style. 
Like, I think he can only make one kind of movie. Probably the kind of director who needed to do one movie every six years instead of one movie every year for the last, like, I don't know. Yeah, he should have been version one Terrence Malick, not version two Terrence Malick. Where, yeah. Um, but I, I, and we didn't, I didn't really mention this, but when I say like, yeah, a good atmosphere, it does have that dream like kind of sensibility where the works on dream logic or the way people interact feels like it is when you're having like a weird dream or people will talk to one another, but ne- their reactions and the way they react to one another or respond to one another doesn't necessarily make any sense, which adds to this like almost otherworldliness, which is part of why I like Lucy Boynton's performance in this so much is because hers is the only one that doesn't feel like it's in a dream it feels like a real person functioning in the real world she seems like the dreamer yeah yeah that's a really good point yeah um the she's the one who's sort of projecting all of what's taking place or maybe the baby was the dreamer and this is nightmare five (laughs) (laughs) when she gets stabbed in the stomach that's why everything goes haywire because inception rules i guess i'm pretty convinced that she wasn't pregnant at all i think that's what the intention is at the end yes i don't think she was pregnant but uh definitely the first time i watched it i was like is this a pro-life movie um (laughs) but that is very small brain to think that about any film that has to do with abortion where the abortion doesn't happen um don't have a small brain don't think like that it's lame i don't know if you were were you i don't know if you do you remember when juno came out I mean, I remember, but I didn't see it. I, I was in church services where people were, were the, from the pulpit were told to go see Juno because it's a pro-life movie. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I it care. kind I, of is, but like I mean, it's also not it, a Christian like, film. I don't think that's a movie you could comfortably recommend for the pulpit. After this, I recommend Michael Sarah's work. Uh, watch Arrested Development. Uh, <laughs> check out... Youth uh, Revolt, Hidden Gem. You know? Is it Paper <laughs> Towns? Is, what's the, no, it's not that one. No, what else is it? Paper, paper Heart. Paper Heart. That's Paper Towns one. is the John Green. Thing. That's a different one. Paper Heart is a cute little movie that no one saw. I recommend that movie. I have it on DVD. It's in my wife's little DVD pack. It's like half documentary, half scripted. It's really interesting. I like it. It's cute. Want to keep up with various Cinematic Doctrine news? Check out our Twitter, at Cinedoctrine. That's C-I-N-E Doctrine. Link in the show notes. So we ended up talking about kind of like the, the the theme being of the film that if you have nowhere to go or if you're abandoned or you're alone, uh, you kind of pine for anything that feels like love or lies to you and convinces you it's love or affection or companionship and you devote yourself to it. How do you, Daniel, see resolving that problem? And give me an answer that's not just Jesus, God, Bible, because obviously, like, obviously I'm convinced that through Christ... <laughs> and understanding his love and compassion and believing it, that starts to resolve those problems, especially as sanctification works through someone. So what's, what's, the, what's the specific thing you're asking? Just to make sure I understand the question. I think it's easy to listen to this episode and think like, we're just talking about a very natural thing, which is that when you have nothing, you devote to whatever you can. And in this sense, it's quite literally, like you said, in horror movies, you can just be literal. It's like, it's Satan. Um, <laughs> she's got nobody, Satan. So it, running with that theme and that idea, um, that metaphor, what would be a resolution to that? The idea of like, you now know somebody who's devoted themselves to something that might be self-destructive or externally destructive. How would you see pulling them out of something like that? Uh, theoretically. Well, theoretically. Bad well, answers only. <laughs> well, this is, it, it, this is a bit of a broad question because- Yes, it is. Ultimately, there's a level of- 
you know, part of why I describe it as idol worship is it's because it's those things are offering them something that either feel like they cannot get from God or something they'd rather have instead. Because uh, they're, you know, I was recently informed about uh, a pastor that had been like a faithful pastor for like 50 something years, like really long time. Uh, but he eventually chose having a mistress and leaving his family, but also the profession because they came a point where to choose between God or what he wanted and he chose what he wanted. Um, and I think in that instance, it's, it's much easier to draw a clear delineation between right and wrong in that instance, because obviously cheating on your wife is bad. <laughs> but uh, for a lot of people that I think that line is a little harder for them to see because what they want isn't something they necessarily see is something that's evil or wrong or bad. Uh, and so partially, I think for some people, the problem is that, how do I say this in a way that's like nice? Uh, I think some people need to rethink what it is. Um, re- it's, it's a rethinking of your priorities in a sense, because for some people, it's like they want the quick fix of, for example, fixing their loneliness. So rather than uh, trying to find it in God or find it in the, by the means in which God uh, heals our loneliness through fellowship, through companionship, through himself, uh, they want a quick fix of an unhealthy relationship or they want a quick fix of uh, choosing poor company or the quick fix of ch- choosing Satan or something. <laughs> but helping somebody who's choosing something other than God, that's a tough one. Uh, because there is something about the thing they're choosing that calls to them uniquely. And for mm-hmm. them, the difficult road of denying self is too much to ask. And the it's hard to say like, well, God, look, if you just come to Jesus and you put the work in, right, God can heal you. Because right. what the world offers is is both incredibly attractive and easy. And what people don't realize is that following Christ is the act of uh, picking up your cross and following him and counting the cost. There is a cost in following God, and there is a cost in choosing the narrow path, which is following Christ. And that's going to cause all kinds of complications in your life. You have to deny self. You have to choose God over sin. You have to um, turn down what the world is offering, which is often extremely attractive because it beckons to um, our sin nature. And that's part of why the kind of like, I don't know, it's postmodern, but that's why so much of the current modern ethics is so both problematic, but also extremely popular because the running ethic for a lot of things that are not of God is why fight this? This is who you are. This is what you want. Like why like, deny your um, any sort of sexual desires because this is both what you're inclined to do this is what you enjoy why do you want something that restricts you or why do you want something that restricts your dietary habits why do you want something that restricts your um, like desires to accumulate worldly uh, wealth it's like but that's what you want to do it's like but following Christ is not about doing just what we are inclined to do by nature of living in a fallen world because we're sinful creatures it is because um, we are called to live by a higher standard uh, and go about the refining process. And so the difficulty of calling people out of those things is because it's what they are inclined to do. Um, so I, I, 
you should definitely pray for those people because it is by the work of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in their lives that'll call them out of sin and shame. Um, but you, you have to be steady and consistent in your faith and in your witness uh, because, you know, if you're saying, so look, this, this God thing, it's so much better. It's so much better than what you're currently doing. But you, they look at your life and it's a mess and you're miserable <laughs> and you don't seem any happier than they are and you are inconsistent and you are, they see hypocrisy in the way you treat others and them. Well, that's not going to work either. But like there, guys, if, if this theoretical situation is taking place, God has put you in their life for a reason. And I can't speak the specifics of it, both because we're talking about someone who doesn't technically exist. We're talking about a theoretical situation. Mm-hmm. But if you're listening to this and there's someone in your life who is struggling with something, whatever it may be, and it's drawing them away from God, um, God puts you in their life either just to pray for them, to be the one who is petitioning for them, to consistently offer and reach out a hand to invite them to not just Sunday church service, but to into your life, into your home, to share a meal to share the love of Christ with them. Uh, because ultimately the answer is that what God is offering is better than what they have. You can have peace that goes beyond understanding. You can have love that does not run out. You can have forgiveness of sins. You can have redemption. And those are things that you can't find in the world. Uh, but, you know, when you're in the world, it's hard to see anything outside of it because it is intoxicating in what it is. I think what's great about movies is, and especially about uh, something like this film being so much more ethereal in terms of engagement. So it's a lot about thinking and, and feeling through it as opposed to just the literal plot, which I'm sure this script was like 30 pages, 20 pages. So it's not a lot. Is that I think what I find to be even in terms of a solution is is like not a solution because i'm not the kind of guy to say this is the one thing to fix such and such whatever uh try this one trick if your friend starts worshiping satan that kind of thing (laughs) but um i think compassion and companionship are paramount to the transformative nature of the holy spirit i think i think the holy spirit can do whatever it wants i think god can do whatever he wants but i think he also chooses to do his work through people. I think I think I have based on the scripture a good good reason for thinking that. And I think in a situation where you're watching somebody devote themselves to something that is self-destructive or they're convinced that it's the only thing that cares for them or they're convinced that it's the only thing that solves this problem in their life or resolves this pain in their life, speaking as somebody who has had extremely self-destructive uh coping mechanisms because they were the thing that make me that that's that temporarily solves the pain or problems in my life. It is companionship and compassion that helped reinforce that I was safe to be cared for and and to step out of the situation I was in. And I think that in terms of feeling and experience, that's why I connect with this movie is because I see a lot of that. I see like a road that I didn't take, which was, you know, total self-destruction and killing other people, which I was never at risk of doing. Self-destruction, yes, but not killing people, uh, not severing their heads and putting them at a furnace in, in my in a school basement. I think compassion and, and companionship resolve those problems, especially if the film in 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 theme with the film being about abandonment and loneliness. I mean, what solves that? It's intimacy. Uh, appropriate intimacy with one another. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had a lot of time to 
think about this particular question, but yeah, you never know what means by which God will uh, rescue someone. Like it, it can be something that, like often, you know, but like, yeah, when you see with like the great commission, like going to all the world and make disciples of all nations, like I think that's very deliberate, like the, the means by which God teaches and instructs and helps form and help people mature as believers is through discipleship It is through, you know, someone, a mature believer taking someone else under their wing and showing them a better way. And so much of ministry is built around this familiar, like relational manner, outreach, <laughs> ministry, evangelism, small groups, like any ministry has ever been effective by any stretch involves very direct human to human contact. You know, there's, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can make a podcast, you can try and have virtual church, or you can, you know, have radio preachers and podcasters and read, hand people books. And those are all nice. I know people who've been saved through those things, but like, if you're just looking at percentages of effectiveness, like most people will say, like, I was lost and alone and confused. And then X person invited me to church. X person invited me to a Bible study. X person was my friend. They, you know, shared the gospel with me. And I think it's something we're losing more and more, both mm-hmm. because um, you can see, you can, you know, there's a variety of fa- factors. There's societal pressure. There's the fact that as a society, you're becoming a little more fractured. Uh, you could say that's because, you know, people are doing fewer and fewer communications in person. I don't know. Surely there's someone who's done some sort of scientific study, but like it is the means by which we've been commissioned to share the gospel, to to reach out to somebody who you see is, you know, getting really comfortable going downstairs to the boiler room. And you're like, oh, I don't know about that. And you go, hey, yeah. like, come to my house <laughs> or whatever. That's metaphorical boiler room, uh, whatever right. it is. <laughs> or What's literal. your boiler room? What is the, what is the boiler room? Your, yeah. Be the David to your boiler room. Yeah. yeah. What's the Jonah's whale that you've been stuck in, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I'm telling you, being a speaker at a youth event, super easy. Uh, <laughs> These babies, they don't read the Bible. They don't know anything. <laughs> just talk about Jonah. <laughs> They're just looking at TikToks, you know, yeah. uh, whatever old, old people say. But yeah, that's, you never know though. Like my, I, I know somebody who nobody invited him to church. He was walking down the street and he walked by a church right. and he walked inside and he sat down in the back right. of you and he gave life to Christ. Uh, but people were praying for him. People had been reaching out to him. You know, there's, there's people who, um, the people have been praying for them or reaching out to them. And you could just be the person who's planting seeds or, who's part of the process by which God brings them to himself. You don't know that, you know, my, uh, I, one of my, my uncle, Sean, he's not my, he's just one of those older friends. My dad had that I just called uncle, but his mother came to the Lord after like 30 or 40 years of, of hearing the gospel. She was a, she was a staunch, I believe Buddhist. And finally, like in her seventies, she came to the Lord and it was just, something so eventually the the levy broke as far as that went you know it took years and years and years and so sometimes it just takes time and sometimes it mm-hmm. i mean all There's things no take rush. place in god's perfect timing but and if you don't you can get your head cut off so you should probably start you know sharing the gospel <laughs> with people so or that will lead to you getting your head cut off i don't know but my point is you're going to get your head cut off at some point and you might as well have it cut off because you're sharing the gospel <laughs> <laughs> which actually isn't that's just your your interpretation of uh, uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain, right? 
uh, <laughs> you're gonna get your head cut off. What's the Jesus says it? What's the worst they can do? Kill you? <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> I conquered the grave. Who cares? Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, no, that, you know, I, ultimately, yeah, like the time we spend on Earth is minuscule compared to eternity. Which is like people probably think I'm crazy for saying that, but so many religious beliefs, even outside of Christianity, believe in either some form of afterlife or some form of like reincarnation or something most belief systems believe that something happens beyond our death of some kind and isn't that like yeah isn't that what a human hope is i want to solve the curse as opposed to i want to be with god so if i can just live forever i can solve the curse of death all right good Um, luck but (laughs) yeah not gonna happen sorry elon uh, or I just watched a great thing about cryogenic stuff, but the guy who did WeWork, he he wants to live forever. Oh well, <laughs> I don't know why you want to live on Earth forever. This place is not the best, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, my point is like, listen, you're gonna live on Earth what eighty years, ninety if you're really healthy and do CrossFit or whatever. Just like what it, that isn't that isn't what does that com- compare to eternity? eternity. Like you're yeah. gonna, you might as well do what you can while you're here to share the gospel and help people you know see the light of christ so and if not you get to you have the glorious opportunity of loving others and enjoying them for the time that you have and that's uh i think there's something beautiful in that too yeah yeah it's a definitely a, that, that, you know it's definitely a romantic uh, angle but in terms of black Coat's daughter i think it uh, a resolution to loneliness is companionship but learning Learning to be a good friend is hard, and I think that becomes more increasingly difficult. <laughs> it does as you get older, older with yeah. more, um, you're you're drawn in more uh, directions, um, and I think it's okay to say safely who you can and can't pursue. I think this is why, like, when I say I connect with this movie and I think about church stuff, I think like how difficult it is for me to connect with other Christians, and it's not because of my own sin struggles. It's not because of me being socially inept. I I think I'm very good in social situations. I think it's one of my strong suits and why I do well at work even. But it's people's commitment and time. Uh, we are actually talking right now during a time when I was going to meet with someone and they texted me yesterday, hey, can we meet not another day? And I said, I can't work another day. And I never got a text back. And I have to meditate on the fact that the relationship that's committed to me is Jesus first and foremost. That's a that's a relationship that will not leave me. There is a sadness because he's not physically here and I want him to be here. Um, but there is there is hope in that relationship and companionship that leads towards a uh, an ex- an experience in which I will never be alone anymore. And I think I can f- temporarily endure loneliness or disconnection from the body of Christ if it means not sinning and going back to old ways. Uh, and looking forward to a hope that I will eternal for eternity be closely knit to my Lord. So anyways, I love this movie. Uh, hopefully if you're feeling alone, well, hopefully you like the movie cause you connect with it, but also, you know, don't, don't chop people's heads off and take them to a boiler room. Uh, get that checked out. Go, go make some friends indoor for friendship. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got for you. Thanks for tuning into my favorite, one of my favorite movies. Thanks, Dan, for watching one of my favorite movies. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) That's cute.
What kind of recommendations do you have today, Daniel? It is uh, from the Museum of the Bible Books series. It is in the ESV translation. Oh, was this one uh, collected, uh, stolen by Hobby Lobby from foreign countries? No. (laughs) Hobby Lobby has this side hustle where they steal foreign artifacts that are basically collected and taken by uh, during war times. And then they will donate them to the Museum of the Bible saying that because it's the Museum of the Bible, they technically have the right to own it. And then, uh, but Hobby Lobby has actually paid many fines for this because they're essentially stealing international goods. Uh, So that's why I was curious. I was just wondering about that one. Uh, (laughs) If maybe this was, uh, if this was what that was, but I don't know. Tell me more about this Bible, Daniel. Tell me more about it. Uh, I'm really into that. Um, It is a neat little Bible that doesn't have traditional study notes in it. But what it does have is a series of annotations that show the historical impact the Bible has had throughout human history. It includes uh, ways that it's affected different historical events, famous writings, includes quotes from famous figures, utilizing the Bible. It mentions where the Bible influenced films or literature or artwork. It's really interesting. Like I enjoy flipping through it as somebody who's a Bible nerd and enjoys uh just neat bibles it's a nice addition to uh my collection because i have plenty of bibles that are great for study notes or great for translation notes or uh useful for study this is a good one as somebody who enjoys uh fun facts and just learning little little nice tidbits uh this one's great it includes lots of like pictures of famous historical artworks that either utilize biblical imagery or quote the bible it includes uh, like mentions where it was mentioned by presidents and their speeches and that sort of thing. It's just great. I really enjoy flipping through it. I found it in a used bookstore for relatively cheap. I have no idea how much it costs anywhere or whether or not it's even um, widely available currently. But uh, yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, my recommendation is going to be a cute and a little silly, but go visit Spirit Halloween, wherever it is. <laughs> Just go. Spirit Halloweens are really fun. Uh, they feel wonderful to walk into. They're overwhelming and just terrible. They're this amazing hypersensory thing where you can practically see the cardboard that divides like the back room of this briefly used uh, warehouse and the costumes that are just absurd. Uh, go visit Spirit Halloween and light, look at all the animatronics. Look at the dumb products you can buy. Uh, see if there's something you can get that you can keep up year round. Uh, they're so fun. That's it. That's all. I. That's really all I had was go visit Spirit Halloween. If there's one near you, do it. It's great. What's your fun, Reco? This may have slipped your attention, listener, but we are not recording this in October. We're recording this a week after seeing The Batman. And uh, my previous set of recommendations was a bunch of Batman-y things. But I think enough time will pass between you listening to that and this one. Are you ready for another set of Batman recommendations? First, I'm going to recommend a cartoon that sort of features Batman in it. It's called Young Justice. It is currently on HBO Max. The first two seasons are some of the best animated DC content ever created. They tell fun, mature stories with with great legacy characters as well as characters that you probably are not super familiar with. Like, so they made Sportsmaster into like a cool mercenary character. No one likes Sportsmaster. He's lame, but not in Young Justice. He's cool in that. And the other inspector, I recommend watching Batman Brave and the Bold. If you were tired of super serious Batman, 
who he's so grim and gritty and all his villains are serial killers and blah 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 isn't batman serious batman brave and the bold is the show for you it features batman interacting with a bunch of golden and silver age villains as well as golden and silver age heroes so it's a continuous multi-crossover episode where he teams up with characters like green arrow and uh and booster gold and all the various dc comics heroes he's voiced by diedrich bader who you may recognize also the voice of batman in the harley quinn show it is a celebration of the sillier campier side of batman batman himself remained serious the whole time which is part of what makes the joke so funny it also features one of the greatest series finales of any television show i have ever watched it's awesome it involves batmite so highly recommend both those two things on opposite ends of the spectrum because hopefully by now you listen to my batman recommendations and you've watched batman the series you played the arkham games you read all those comics i told you well now you're ready for level two batman <laughs> can't wait for level three <laughs> Thanks so much for checking out this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a review and subscribing to the podcast. And as mentioned before, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you're opted into a once-a-month movie poll where you decide a movie we discuss on the podcast. There are other unique benefits that come with supporting the podcast, so be sure to check that out at patreon.com forward slash cinematicdoctrine. A special shout out to those who support at the Art House Theater tier on Patreon. Thank you so much, Mom, Dad, Melanie, Sherlyon, and Thomas. You guys are the best, and your continued monetary support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematicdoctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.